Well, good morning, and would you join me as we do every single week in opening up our Bibles, this time to the uh, book of Luke chapter 24. For those who uh, may be joining online or may be uh, new here, even joining us this morning, my name is Aaron Syverson, and I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here at Grace Church. And I have to say, while there is not as many people here as we would like to have hoped to because of our restrictions with COVID, there are far many people, more people here than there was last year when it was me and a camera and we were all at home. So we are trending in the right direction. But um, if you are just joining us, we are finishing this morning a sermon series that we've had leading up to Easter Sunday that we've called Meals with Jesus. Meals with Jesus. And we are showing how often food and, and table fellowship plays a role throughout Jesus' ministry. And we've hit on the point in a few different ways that, that walls tend to come down when people share meals with one another. Eating together is a part of the human experience, and often things get revealed when we share a table with somebody. Things sometimes for better, other times for worse, but meals tend to expose our hearts before others. And while meals are prominent in the Gospels, which we've been looking at in this series, particularly in Luke, this theme actually begins at the starting point of human history in the very opening chapters of the Bible. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the record of the creation story where a triune God from eternity past created all things out of nothing for his glory. Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then um, down further in chapter 1, in verse 27, we learn that only one aspect of God's creation was unique. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But something that is overlooked in these familiar opening chapters is the immediate presence of food once man is created. So we just read verse 27, but then in verse 29, we see this. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then again, verse 30 ends with this. I have given every green plant for food. And there's very, I think, I think there's deeper spiritual reasons, but there's an immediate practical application in that God made man and woman and designed them with a need for food. You literally cannot live without it. It's why when a baby is born, they intuitively know right away that they need to eat. Being in the delivery room a few times, typically uh, they say that within the first hour of a baby being born, they feed for the first time. The baby comes in, welcome to the world. Everything is new for them. They're seeing, they're breathing, right? Cool, cool. When do we eat? (laughs) And then apparently a child just says that every two hours for the rest of their lives. I don't know. That's all I know at this point, that that never stops. When do we eat? And that's chapter 1 of the Bible. That's how it begins. And then chapter 2, which um, gives kind of a zoomed-in version of the same creation story, shortly after creating Adam in verse 16, 
we read this. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, there was a shared meal at the beginning of history. Again, not just for physical need, but a relational aspect of meal fellowship, creator with his creation. And then you turn to chapter 3, and again, it is at a meal, isn't it interesting? It's at a meal where the sinful heart of Adam and Eve gets exposed and everything changes. You see, church, meals reveal things, for better or for worse. Paul will write in the letter of Romans that sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and then death came through sin. And then the rest of the Bible story, from from chapter 3 on, the rest of the Bible story is this single story of how God is redeeming and restoring his creation, and he will do it through a redeemer by taking on flesh himself through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. We fast forward things that we've seen over this weekend and this past week at Uh, When Pastor Joe shared the Good Friday message, that it was once again at a meal where the night began where Jesus would get arrested. When he broke bread and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. From that meal, Jesus would get arrested, tortured, killed, and buried We heard Genevieve read the resurrection passage in Luke earlier in this service, and now we're going to read the first appearance that Luke records, which will eventually lead to, you guessed it, a meal. So turn to Luke 24, we're going to pick this story up in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Between the four gospels, there are several appearances that are written about the resurrected Jesus uh, appearing before his disciples. But I think this is one of my favorites because Jesus does not reveal himself right away. 
two of his followers, they're, they're walking home on the road to Emmaus. We're only told the name of one, Cleopas. Many believe this could have been Cleopas and his wife heading home from Jerusalem after Jesus was killed. Because as we know, Jerusalem, not the safest place to be at this point if you were a known follower of Jesus. And then Jesus, unbeknownst to them, comes upon them and says, hey guys, what are we talking about? And Luke says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's a passive voice, right? They were kept from seeing, meaning that God, in his sovereign purposes, did not reveal Jesus to these two disciples. So if you want a little bit of a rabbit hole to go down this Easter afternoon, I'll give you one. You might wonder, how is it that these two disciples were following them with Jesus, saw them, him all the time, now sees this man walking with them, but does not realize it was Jesus. How is that possible? And yet we consider that Jesus is now in his resurrected body, which is a real body. They knew that there was a real man walking with us on the road, but this body we know can do things that his old body couldn't do. As we'll see later in this passage, this is a body that can vanish on the spot. In another story in the Gospel of John, he walks through a wall and just appears to his disciples. So Jesus' resurrected body is a real body, but it's able to do things that our bodies cannot do. So what did Jesus look like here? We have no idea. But apparently it did not look like Jesus before he died. There's an early 20th century pastor named H.A. Ironside. He writes this, quote, He was no longer the man of sorrows, but the triumphant Christ, every trace of care and grief having vanished from his face. So Cleopas says impatiently, Come on, are you the only one in this entire city who doesn't know what just happened? You notice the irony in that question? Cleopas is asking this to the only person who does actually know all that has happened in this city. And yet Jesus still, he goes, what things? Humor me. Tell me about this event that happened. You know, in honor of uh, being opening weekend for the baseball season, uh, this passage reminds me of a bit that Aaron Judge, a player in the New York Yankees, did a few years ago on the Jimmy Fallon show. You can go on YouTube and watch. Um, where, where Aaron Judge went to Bryant Park in Manhattan to interview Yankee fans about Aaron Judge. He wasn't even in that good of a disguise. I think he had, like, glasses on. But, uh, you know, he's interviewing these different people. And this one guy says, you know, my favorite player is Aaron Judge, bro. And, and, like, he's got 13 home runs already, but he can't keep that pace. And Judge is going, you know, I think he can, though. I think he, I think he can. And then Judge at some point says, like, hey, you know, some people say they actually look like Aaron Judge. And, and the guy, like, looks at him, studies his face, and goes, I don't know, maybe a little bit. You know, like, like, like doing it, and then he reveals, and you just see, like, all, like, he just looks like a white as a ghost afterwards. We realize this is Aaron Judge, and he can't speak anymore. But Cleopas at least had the excuse that maybe Jesus did not look like the old Jesus that he knew. But all the same, Jesus plays along. Tell me about him. What happened? Cleopas recounts the events of what happened, and if you notice, he actually recounts them accurately. 
Jesus was a prophet. He, he was mighty in deed and in word. And then the chief priests and the rulers crucified him. And now on the third day, some women came from the tomb and said it was empty. And they even had this vision from angels saying he was alive. The men in this group clearly not believing the women, they go and they check it out for themselves, but say, no, there's nothing here. They had the historical events down, but hear me, they failed to believe in the bodily resurrection, even when it was right in front of them. Cleopas, amongst the others, did not believe the women. He lacked faith to understand all that Jesus had predicted, and his actions now proved it. He was going home hopeless. Game over. Turn the chapter. Let's go home. You see, he knew about Jesus. Church, don't we talk about this all the time? He knew about Jesus. He knew about the events that were supposed to take place. But he didn't know him. There's a big difference. It can mean all the difference to know about Jesus. But to not have intimate knowledge of faith. This is why Easter is such a big deal. This is why it's not an overstatement to say that all of Christianity boils down to this. It's the way Pastor Joe began our service. This is the foundation that everything rests upon. Do you believe Jesus is alive? It doesn't take faith necessarily to believe that he died. But do you believe he's alive? Jesus is still unrevealed to them at this point. Jesus rebukes them for not believing. And then he proceeds to give the most incredible Bible study ever given. Don't you wish you were on this road with them? Don't you wish that, that conversation was recorded? On this seven-mile trek, Jesus starts at the beginning in the garden with the shared fellowship between creator and creation. And then he works his way throughout the entire Old Testament, pointing out along the way how every story in the Old Testament points to him. Don't you wish you were there? The Bible doesn't exist to make you a nicer person. It doesn't give you some advice on life and how to be moral and upright. It's a single story with one hero, and his name is Jesus. And we don't understand any passage in this Bible from cover to cover until we understand how it connects to the person and work of Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost. All right, so that's the context setting up for this meal. Now let's read about the meal. The three of them arrive at the home of Cleopas and this other disciple, and let's see what happens. Pick it up at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Walls come down at the table. 
things get exposed at mealtime. It was at a meal in the beginning where sinful hearts were exposed and the world spiraled into the fall in Genesis 3. And now it's at a meal here in the middle where the eyes of those sinful hearts were opened to the one who restores the fallen creation and ushers in a new kingdom. If you did watch uh, Pastor Joe's um, message on Friday, Luke gives nearly the identical wording here in Luke 24 on the day Jesus was resurrected as he did in the account of Jesus instating the Lord's Supper in Luke 22 on the night he was arrested. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. It's the same wording. And this is the moment that God opened their eyes to who he was, showing in that moment that the resurrection changes everything, right? And in this way, and this is kind of the main point of what I just wanted to convey this morning, the resurrection, Easter Sunday, properly understood is not the end of the story, but the beginning of a new story. So so vital that the resurrection is not just the end of the story, it's the beginning of a new story because I was um, talking to the staff this week that I, I have a confession to make. And that and the one thing that I fear I can be guilty of is overemphasizing the cross at the, expansion, at the expense of the resurrection. Too heavy on Good Friday, too light on Easter Sunday. Meaning that we could emphasize what we are saved from in the old life of sin but then not talk enough about about what we are saved into. What's this mean for today? And there's probably a lot of reasons for this, one of which is just the over-individualized tendency we can have in our culture today that Jesus died for my sins, and I say the prayer, and I am forgiven, and now I go to heaven. And those things are true, yes and amen, praise God for them. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it didn't just prove that he was who he said he was. It ushers in a start of a new story that forms how we live today. As many of you know, Luke wrote his gospel as part one of a two-part series. And that he also wrote the book of Acts. Which speaks about the birth and growth in the early ch- of the early church in the years after Jesus would ascend to heaven. So you could put it this way, that the, the gospel of Luke is about the cross. And the book of Acts, and the rest of the New Testament for that matter, is about the resurrection. The resurrection is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new story. And it's a new story that begins at a meal. So for the rest of our time, I want to show us how the resurrection forms four things. And we're going to be very brief going through the four of them. I just kind of want to give us a taste for you to ponder just as these disciples pondered them while sitting at the table. Four things the resurrection tells us about today. Number one, the resurrection forms a new person. The resurrection forms a new person. You know, in all of Jesus' interactions following the resurrection, he never enforces his will on anyone. But rather, he asks questions to draw people out in order to draw them in. Mary at the tomb, he asks, why are you crying? 
Peter over a fish breakfast in the Gospel of John. Do you love me? And then here on the road with Cleopas, what things? What are you sad about? Tim Keller writes this, quote, He does not approach like a sergeant seeking submission, but like a counselor seeking insight. Jesus would enforce his will on no one. He doesn't force anyone to believe. He draws us out in order to draw us in. And there would be no hope for any of us if God did wait for us to make the first move toward him. Friend, if you are listening here this morning or watching online, and you've not trusted your life to Jesus Christ, what are you looking for in life? Do you know the answer to that question? What is the deepest hope that you want to have for today? When, when you wake up tomorrow, what, what, what's your deepest hope? Where are you finding that hope? And is it delivering on what you want it to provide. God designed us with a need for food to physically live. From the moment we are born, again, we all ate within the first hour because we wake up and we say, cool, cool, when do we eat? And that, the fact that God designed you that way is a pointer to the fact that we need a Savior to live. Think about this with me. Every single time you eat, every time your, your stomach tells your brain that you're hungry, every single time you put something in your mouth, it's a reminder that you need something outside of yourself to come in and sustain you physically. Every single day. And brothers and sisters, that's a signpost. That's a signpost to the deeper spiritual truth that in the same way, we need something outside of ourselves to come in and to save and to sustain us spiritually because of sin, because of the curse of the fall, because of the fallenness of our own natures. We cannot sustain ourselves without something outside of ourselves. And that's the message that we have this weekend, that in Jesus, the curse of the fall was reversed. For Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus was the first resurrected body to walk the earth. And in doing so, he inaugurates, he initiates a new kingdom where we may live and never see death if we put our faith in him. It's the resurrection inviting us into a new beginning where we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus lives. And if you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart, you will live too. That's number one. Number two, what the resurrection forms is a new people. Not just a new person, but a new people. Again, in our hyper-individualized society, we kind of often miss this. But Cleopas and the other disciple immediately 
are at the table with one another, and Jesus vanishes, and they look to um, one another, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures on the road? Luke is showing us this is immediately a corporate experience. This is not individual salvation, just me and Jesus. I'm good. I don't need anyone else. This is the realization that when we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and we become adopted sons and daughters of God, that we join a family. We gain a family. Which is affirmed all the more when they chose right away to go back to Jerusalem. And did you pick up in the text that they said, it's already late in the day. Jesus, stay with us. The day's already far gone. And yet, now after this happens, they go, who cares that the day's far gone? We're going back. We got to go back and be with our people. We got to go tell of this good news. And so they run back to disciples whom he had, Jesus had already also appeared to Simon. And they have news for them as they share news back. But upon faith in Jesus, you are not merely a new person. You are joined to a new people. And this is a shared, emotionally charged experience. Did not our hearts burn within us? Did, not, did this not set us ablaze with affections for Christ? But you see the language, us and our. And the emotional experience is not a guarantee of anything in and of itself. There are followers of plenty of false religions who have emotional experiences all the time. Thabiti Anabwile says here, friends, a burning heart is no proof of religious claims. It might be that heavy lunch you had. It was Christ's presence with them that gave them this warm feeling. They had walked and talked with God. And Jesus sends his Holy Spirit upon his people in order that his presence might be with us. And, and true affections will occur as a result of being in the presence of Christ with others. And these affections, I think, are most consistently and effectively set on fire when we are gathered to worship. How do you know that you know Christ and don't just know about him and just don't know about the events? When you know him, it gets to the level of the affections. It gets to the desire to be with others, to see this as a shared experience. I think one of the best historical evidences that the resurrection is true is the transformation that took place amongst the disciples in such a short period of time. You know, Jesus was not the first person in history to, be, to claim to be the Messiah, not even amongst the Jewish people. It had happened before, plenty of times before. He's not the per first person to be crucified who claimed to be the Messiah. But he's the first person where a movement took off after his death. Because he's the only one who rose from the dead. And the courageous, on-fire, risk-taking worship of his people who were just terrified and hiding three days prior is the, one of the surest evidences of it. So you're a new person who becomes part of a new people who third, now have a new mission. We now have a new mission. This is what the resurrection forms. What is the new mission? For every person who has confessed Christ as Lord with their mouth, believed in their heart, this is our new mission. Matthew 28, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Think about this with me. If the cross and the empty tomb was just about personal forgiveness of sin, it's just this guarantee that you're going to be in heaven someday. Just say this prayer, say these words, do these things, and then you're going to be in heaven with God for all of eternity. If that's all it was, have you ever wondered, why are we still here? Why didn't Cleopas and the other disciple, the moment their eyes were opened, why didn't they vanish too? If that's all Jesus was after, why didn't they believe and just immediately start eternal life in heaven? Leave all this behind? And yet, isn't that how we often talk about salvation? Again, I need to be aware where I'm guilty of this. We only talk about what you've been saved from in the past. We only talk about what you will get in the future when you die, but comparably very little about, church, what should we be doing right now? The resurrection is not the end of the story. It's the start of a new story. It's like how, wedding, how um, engaged couples think only about the wedding day. Just get me to the wedding day. And then they wake up the day after getting married, like, oh, wait, now we have to be married? <laughs> Right? The wedding day is not the end of a relationship. It's the start of a new chapter in that relationship, a new story. Which is why the New Testament doesn't end with the Gospels. Again, it's why there's the, letter of, the book of Acts and all the letters. It's to guide the church in the mission of the resurrection to make disciples. And so the resurrection, your resurrection in Christ, is not deferred until you stop breathing in this world. It begins the moment you are saved. To make disciples, to be salt and light, to endure suffering, to push back the darkness of this fallen creation because of the light that now lives within us. To play a part in the expansion of God's kingdom that has already been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Friends, if the Christian life is merely about showing up to church once a week, maybe doing a couple other things throughout the year, Maybe, you know, check the boxes there, but then save your best energy and your best life and your best pursuit of things in this world, of things of this world. That is a boring, wasted life. It is a wasted life. That'd be like having the cure for cancer, but deciding not to tell anyone about it or do anything about it. But a full life, a resurrection-formed life, is a life that seeks to pour ourselves out for the mission that God has called us to. To proclaim him in word and deed together with one another. To love our neighbors and not only that, but to love our enemies like our neighbors. To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly with our God. And then number four. The resurrection forms a new hope. The final point, the resurrection tells us that because he lives, I am a new person joined with a new people who together have a new mission that is finally rooted in a new hope, a hope that is rooted in the assurance of a final and complete resurrection of our bodies and souls when Christ returns. It doesn't make us neglect what we have to do today, but that future hope is what roots and, and, and serves as the foundation to live today the way we're called 
to live. You know, I began with talking about how meals took place in the opening chapters of the Bible. When God created the heavens and the earth. And so I want to end with showing us a glimpse into the final chapters of the Bible. Do you know what's there? A meal. When Christ ushers in what the book of Revelation calls the new heavens and the new earth, there's a meal that awaits us. These verses will be on the screen. This is Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Meals with Jesus. There was a meal at the beginning when God created. There was a meal at the fall when man sinned. There was a meal in the middle at the redemption when Jesus died and rose again. And there will be a meal at the end when God restores all things. There is just something about eating together. That was, that is, that always will be. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful each week for your word But there's something about Easter Sunday, Lord, where we just hunger for this all the more, Lord, that again, it's a signpost. It's a post that you've created us with a desire that cannot be fulfilled with anything but you. Father, I thank you for all who are here this morning, virtually and in person. And I pray that your spirit would reveal, Lord, seeing in our text so clearly that it takes revelation from you, Lord, that we cannot see these things ourselves, that we are kept from seeing them. And so, Father, pour your grace out upon us to find our deepest hope rooted in you, to be new people with a new mission, to glorify your name in all things, Father. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done and what you are doing. And, Lord, our hope is in what you will do. It's your name that we pray. Amen.